This show is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Charleston Coffee Roasters. Charleston Coffee Roasters painstakingly searches the world over for the highest quality coffee beans. They bring them home to Charleston, South Carolina, where slow roasting coaxes out their unique flavor. Along with their promise of great coffee, Charleston Coffee Roasters also pledges to help our planet and local communities. Globally, they support sustainable farming practices. Locally, they partner with the South Carolina Sea Turtle Rescue Program. Visit their website, charlestoncoffeeroasters.com, and use the code COFFEEWITHFRIENDS, all lowercase, all one word, to get 20% off on all bagged coffees. Dover is a character. It's just, it is this place that's filled with unknown stories because all the, you know, bodies will come into Dover and they'll tell you, oh, this is Ron Block, you know, he died so-and-so on this place. But you find out that that person is not named Ron. He did not die where they said they died. He was actually, you know, undercover doing the secret work for the government that no one will know about. And no one knows the true story except for the mortician who has to rebuild him to make sure his family can see him one last time. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. I am so excited to host our guest today, Brad Meltzer. He's the author of the newly released The Lightning Rod, featuring two of his most popular characters, Zig and Nola, of which Karen Slaughter says, enigmatic and mysterious, Nola is a force. Great plotting, great characters. The lightning rod is Meltzer at his finest, which I can't wait to dive in and talk about. There's many other projects that he's known for that may even surprise you, but will most certainly endear you to him. I am Ron Block. First, let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Brad is, in addition to The Lightning Rod, the number one New York Times bestselling author of The Inner Circle, The Book of Fate, and 10 other bestselling thrillers. He also writes nonfiction books like The First Conspiracy about a plot that was secret to kill George Washington and The Ordinary People Changed the World kids book series, which we're really going to dive into. His newest thriller, The Escape Artist, would be for The Lightning Rod, debuted at number one on the bestseller list. His newest kid's book is I Am Malala and I Am Muhammad Ali. His newest nonfiction book is The Lincoln Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill America's 16th President and Why It Failed. In addition to his fiction, Brad is one of the only authors to ever have books on the bestseller list for nonfiction, advice, and children's books. And even beyond that, comic books, for which he has won the prestigious Eisner Award. 
It must be some kind of literary egot, in my opinion. <laughs> There's so much more to know about Brad, and I urge you to visit his website at bradmeltzer.com. You will be inspired and fascinating. Welcome to the podcast, Brad, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ron. Before we start, I want to say a big congratulations. I understand this is your 25th anniversary of publishing. What does that feel like? I know 25 years makes me feel old because it sounds old, but I, I guess it was good because I, I sold my first book when I was three. No. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's 25 years of being a published author. My first book got 24 rejection letters. There were only wow. 20, only 20 publishers at the time, and I got 24 rejection letters, which means that some, people, some people were writing me twice to make sure I get the point. <laughs> but, I, you know, when I look back, I can't possibly imagine when I started writing thrillers that we were going to be able to, over 25 years, expand into nonfiction history books for adults, then kids books, then Superman and Batman and Spider-Man and comic books, much less doing any, any of the TV shows we did. So I just feel very lucky and blessed that I get to talk to my imaginary friends all day long. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But I, I'm just overwhelmed by all of the projects that you've had. And, and, and it actually, it seems like 25 years is not very long to get all that in. But has it been everything you thought it would be? No, of course not. I mean, I think if you look at my first interviews, I've decided for this tour that I'm just not going to tell lies, right? I feel like mm. it's important. Like, in, in my first interviews, you said something, was it everything I thought it'd be? I'd say, yes, and I'm so thankful. And, I'm, and everything's great. And everything's perfect. And I think my fear was I was afraid to ever tell the truth because I didn't want to seem thankless. Right. I didn't want to seem like I didn't appreciate what I had. And, and I still do that to this day. I'm so thankful for it. What I will add, though, is how much it, it's hard work. Every day I sit down there, you'd think after 25 years, I'd be like, I know how to do this. And if you want to churn out garbage, then yeah, you can say, I know how to do this and you'll churn out the same stuff. But if you want to actually be a better writer, if you want to, you know, we've all read those authors who their first books are great. And then you read them now and you're like, they're fine. They're okay, but they're just never what they were. And that's because the writers hates it too. And they're miserable. And they've done the same thing a million times. I never want to be that writer. That's my great fear. So every time I sit down to write, I think about getting that 23rd and 24th rejection letter. I recreate the moment in the room. I recreate the phone I was holding when I got it. I recreate the bed that was on my right and the desk that was on my left. And I look over the balcony and I see this fire station with three doors. And I remember my agent said to me, sorry, kiddo, when she told me we got those rejections. Sorry, kiddo. And for 25 years now, every single day I sit down to write, I replay the whole moment. You know, and because I never want to think I made it. I never want to think that I have everything and, I, and I'm finished. I never want to ever be as hungry as I was when I was 20 years old, 24 years old. And I certainly never want to be anything but thankful for what I have. So 25 years now, Ron, every time I sit down to write, I say to myself, sorry, kiddo, sorry, kiddo, sorry, kiddo. That's my secret. That sounds like it's an internal driving force. I love it. So you mentioned so many rejection letters at the beginning. Tell me about getting the one. Okay. So here's the one. So I was about to get married. I don't think I've ever told this story. I was about to get married and I told my, I live, my family lived in Florida. We were living in New York at the time. I was in law school. I had all this debt to pay off, college debt, law school debt, everything, debt, debt, debt. And 
I told my, my mom said to me, you're getting married in like next week. You got to go get a, a tan in a tanning salon. I'm like, I'm not going to a tanning salon. That is the most pathetic, <laughs> awful like use of your time. Like the cancer caused it. Like the whole thing was just horrible. It was so Florida to me that I was like, never. But my mom's like, you look like death. It's your wedding. You're going to regret it. Go get a tan. And I just was like, okay. My mom, may she rest in peace, was like, I'm listening to my mother. So when you, the 10th Justice was the first book. And in, in the opening scene of the book, you can see the, car, the main character in the book wears lucky underwear. And I got that for myself. I used to have a pair of lucky underwear. I took every test in college in this lucky underwear, every test in law school wearing the same lucky underwear. And I happened to be wearing that underwear that day. And I get to the tanning salon, at beach bum tanning, I'll never forget. And I told my wife, I said, listen, if anyone calls, you don't know where I am. Don't tell anyone. I'm so embarrassed. I'm mortified that I'm going to this place. So I go in the tanning bed. You got to obviously strip down except for your underwear. And, and I'm in the tanning bed with the little goggles on, burning myself. And all of a sudden, the thing goes off in the middle of the session. And I, I'm like, what's going on? And this is pre-cell phone. So I hear a knock on the door. They're like, there's a phone call for you at the tanning salon. I'm like, oh, my <laughs> God, course. who died, right? <laughs> who died? So I, I get to the phone. And it's my wife. And she says, call Jill. There's an offer. Jill was my agent, still my agent. And I literally dial back the number long distance on the thing. And I call Jill and she tells me that there's an offer. Someone wants to actually buy my first book. And my first thought in my head is I look down, I'm wearing just a towel. And I look down <laughs> at my lucky underwear. I'm wearing my friggin' lucky underwear. I'm like, I knew it. I knew it worked. So that was literally the one that said yes. And I will never, ever be able to associate it with anything but a tanning booth. <laughs> That is one of the best stories I've ever heard. It's true. Lucky, everybody needs lucky underwear. We do. Okay, so we're kind of here to talk about the lightning round, I guess. We can talk about that other all day. But tell everybody what the book is about. It's out just out this week. Yep, it's, it's literally out now. It just came out. And the lightning rod opens with one of my great fears in life. There's a valet at a fancy steakhouse. And uh, a guy who's kind of built like Captain America, big, you know, muscular guy comes and pulls up in his BMW, throws his keys at the valet, says, take my car like a jerk. And the valet takes the keys, gets in the car. But instead of parking the car, he hits the GPS button and says to the voice activated command system, go home. And the car says, plot on a course to home. And now instead of parking that car, this is a robbery. He's going home. He has Captain America's keys. He has the keys to his house, and he has the route to his home. And when he gets into the house, what this what the valet is doing is he's going to just rob him. He takes one thing. You don't rob the whole house because then they call the police. He's take one thing. When you lose one thing, you just think you lost it. You don't think anyone robbed you. And when he steps into the house, he sees that someone's waiting for him who says, you really think we didn't know what you were doing? And he realized this isn't a robbery at all. It's a trap. He races out, jumps back in the car. Captain America is actually in the car waiting for him, jumps him. And the guy's like, you got to let us go. You got to let us go. There's someone in your house. And Captain America says, what do you mean there's someone in my house? And he's like, don't you know? And they both turn, they hear a knock and they turn to the left. There's a guy with the gun. Boom, shoots the valet. Boom, shoots Captain America. Both of them go dead. I just ruined chapter one for you, the lightning rod. But the point being is um, where that body goes and who investigates the crime winds up changing everything. And um, it centers around Nola Brown this amazing, strong, powerful character 
who is just kind of like my girl with the dragon tattoo. If you like that, everyone says that, which is unfair to the girl with the dragon tattoo, but very nice. <laughs> but she's my one of my favorite characters I've ever written, and uh, it winds up being the most important case of her life. And she really cares about this one. So yeah. she's the lightning rod. The other main character that you have from the escape artist to this one is Nola and Zig. And, and right up front, I'll say that they are standalone. So it's just the same characters in a whole different story. So you don't have to have read the first one. But they're both so fully realized. I want to know what sparked their original creation and entrance into your work. Yeah, so I do a lot of work with the USO and have been all over the world with the USO. I, you know, they bring me to entertain the troops in Kuwait and um, Oman and Qatar. I've been to Cuba. I've been to Turkey. Wherever they tell me to go, I go. And it was there I heard about Dover Air Force Base. And we all know Dover, even if we don't realize it. Dover is that place where you see those flag-covered coffins come out of the planes and all the troops salute that coffin. And it was at Dover where those bodies are taken. And, And as a result, Dover takes not just the military people, but the CIA people who are doing secret stuff abroad, all our secret squirrels who are our 007s who are abroad, those bodies come to Dover too. The victims in the Pentagon in 9-11 went to Dover. Those bodies went there. The the space shuttle explosion went to Dover. Dover is a place that's full of secrets. And I was like, I want to write about the morticians who work there and what they see. And I went to one of the morticians and said, someone who worked at Dover, I should say, and said, um, you know, I want to have a something where you can have a secret code put into one of the bodies. Have you ever seen that? Like maybe someone comes in, they have a tattoo or something in their pocket. And they said to me that if you were on a plane and your plane was going down and you ate a note, you wrote a note and you ate it, that if when the plane crashed, the liquids in your stomach would actually preserve the note. And I thought, that's a really cool idea. Wow. And they said to me, that's not an idea that really happened. So I just ruined chapter one of the escape artist for you, the other book, but um, that's what happens in the beginning of the book. And what I loved about Dover and what I loved about Zig was the main character is the, the morticians at Dover will spend 12 hours rewiring someone's jaw and smoothing it over with clay because they want a family wants to see their son one last time or rebuilding someone's hand from scratch because a mother wants to hold her son's hand one last time. These are the best of the best of us working on the best of the best of us. And I thought, what a great main character. So Zig was born out of that character. And Nola, as I mentioned, one of my favorite characters, I was in a military museum uh, in Virginia, where they had all this art. And I was like, why does the military have all these paintings, all this art? Why does the military own it? And they explained to me that since World War I, there have been actual painters on staff painting disasters as they happen. From... Vietnam to the beaches of Normandy to 9-11. And I'm like, you're telling me that everyone else is racing in there with guns and you've got someone racing in there with, with paintbrushes? That's the craziest guy in the world. I want to meet that guy. Can you introduce me? I want to meet him. And they said to me, you mean her. You want to meet her. And that's where Nola was born. And so Zig is this mortician who works on these dead bodies. Nola is this artist painter when she paints, she can see things that other people miss. She sees details that no one else sees because she has such a uh, kind of eagle eye. And she can find the weakness in anything. And um, and the two of them are just these incredible characters that have just kind of, I almost think they're like different sides of my personality. Zig is this kind of positive force that just believes the world is good and kindness will rule and that's what we need. And that is a certain definite part of me. And Nola is that strong belief also that when things go wrong and someone harms you, you need to punch them in the face 
and you have to make the world <laughs> bend the way you want it if you want anything good to happen. And, and I don't know which is right. I internally fight myself. And so Nolan and Zig kind of get to be my angel and, and demon, so to speak. Absolutely. I think together they probably make up the perfect personality. But The Escape Artist was a big hit. And then what, what sparked the idea to bring them back in, in a new story? You know, I always knew I wanted to, I've done so many books for so many years where I just, you know, new characters, new problem, new characters, new problem. And then I finally started doing another character. And I'm someone who grew up on comic books and Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman and Spider-Man and those characters. And I realized that you can only do that when you have a character with the depth to support all those stories. And I never really had that character in my head. Um, And then I had Zig and Nola and I realized what I want to say is, is better fed through him. And more important, their stories aren't told yet. So Zig lost his daughter when she was 12 years old and is just devastated to this moment by it. Everything he does, the reason he works at Dover, the reason he puts himself through working with these dead soldiers is he's trying to bring that one thing he can't have himself, which is closure. He, he, he will never stop missing his daughter. And Nola was given away when she was a little kid, like garbage to someone, to an abusive parent who was horrible to her. Some of the most brutal, but also interesting fascinating scenes of the book are based on, on what happens to her there. And Nola forever needs a father and Zig forever needs a daughter. And that relationship is just the true North of these two characters. They, they can only solve every crime in there together. It, it, one of them cannot be right all the time. It takes both of them and neither of them wants to ever acknowledge they need anything. So that that's their core. And I think it's, a, you know, it's again, comes out of my own belief system that, that, you know, when you pick just one side and you think that one side is always right, you're inevitably missing the complex picture. That's so true. So true. And that makes so much sense when you said that about the two characters and, and it really shines through in the book. The Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Page One Books. The Page One Book subscription provides the personal touch of an indie bookstore with the delight and surprise of an online subscription service curated just for you. The literary matchmakers at Page One Books hand-select books just for you based on your preferences and their knowledge. At Page One Books, you are more than an algorithm. Shop now at pageonebooks.com. That's page, the number one, books.com. Choose their three, six, or 12-month subscription plan. The gift of Page One is always a custom fit. And now you can get 15% off all book subscriptions with the code FRIENDS15. Another kind of character you kind of touched on a little bit was Dover. I almost felt like Dover was its own character. And you obviously dig deep into research. Can you talk about your research process and what you may have learned beyond what you've already said at Dover? Yeah, I mean, Dover is a character. It's just, it is this place that's filled with unknown stories because all the you know bodies will come into Dover and they'll tell you, oh, this is Ron Block. You know, he died so-and-so on this place. But you find out that that person is not named Ron. He did not die where they said they died. He was actually, you know, undercover doing the secret work for the government that no one will know about. 
And no one knows the true story except for the mortician who has to rebuild him to make sure his family can see him one last time. And I was fascinated with that. So each book, you know, kind of takes a different part of Dover and the lightning rod. I was fascinated with the photographers. We have this wonderful scene with the Dover photographers play a big role where you see, um, they're the only other people beside the morticians who, cause they're taking pictures. They see everything that comes in and they have access to their, they literally take their wallets. They undo and pull out their wallets and take pictures of everything in it down to the serial numbers on the dollar bills and their wallets. Cause they want to make sure that those personal remains that go back to the family are the exact personal remains they came with. They'll find letters that are half written waiting to be sent home, telling their families they love them. They'll find extra wedding bands because people get married and cheat on their wives. They find secrets. They find letters you should never be writing when you're married. Um, and those photographers have an uncanny view of the universe because of the position that they're in. Uh, and then the other thing that I really was obsessed with in this book, especially for the lightning rod. And I, listen, I, I love good secrets. I've spent books where I did the secret tunnels below the White House. I've done the secret labyrinth below the Capitol. I've even done the little hidden city below Disney World in one of my books. But I never found one like this. It's it's basically a dozen secret warehouses that the government has all across the country where they deal with pandemic issues, as we know as pandemic issues, but could be anything from you know, it, it's like a Costco for the end of the world. It has <laughs> vaccines for smallpox and anthrax and H1N1 and hantavirus. They have cobra venom. God knows what they need that for, but they have that there too. This giant, like three, four, five Costco's in a row, 12 hidden secret warehouses all across the country so that if there's a disaster that breaks out, a natural disaster that breaks out or some kind of biological attack, the government can have all the anti-venoms and vaccines right there. And I was blown away by that. I'm like, you're telling me the government has these secret warehouses all across the country, right in front of our faces in some cases, and right. nobody knows they're there. You better believe I want to know what's inside them. And, and obviously, when you see the lightning rod, you will see exactly what's inside them. I won't ruin that part of the book, but you'll see exactly what is inside them. Yeah. And I have to say, I was reading it going, man, he's really good at telling these things. I said, they can't be right that we had to make it up. And I was doing a little Googling and it's like, oh my God, he's right. You yeah, no, it was a fun, I mean, the hard part, the thing was, is, you know, this is where the advantage of being slow as a writer, I, I started, you know, obviously with, with everything that happened with, with coronavirus, no one's getting in those warehouses today. They are on like supreme lockdown. They are right. just, you know, but I researched this book five years ago. So I had unprecedented access to these places and got to see, you know, just an unreal view of that universe, went to the headquarters when it was at the CDC, went into the kind of master command room where they control it. I mean, it was crazy access to this where if the pandemic happened, I couldn't get into any of those places. We would all be under lockdown. So when you read the Lightning Rod and you get to that point, you're like, is this real? I, you know, I changed the security <laughs> stuff. I changed yeah. the security entry, but otherwise you will, what you see is, is what's in there. That's what you get. Wow. So <laughs> this wasn't even a planned question, but were you when you were young, did you think you wanted to be a spy? Were you fascinated by spy characters? And it you know seems like you're living that dream now in a way. It's, it's funny. I, it's funny you ask that. When, when I first moved to Florida, I didn't have any friends. We, we moved when I was 13. And when you move when you're 13, it mm. means wherever you land, you're going to not have friends right, right when you get there. True. And my favorite game 
I haven't thought about this. This will, this will probably reveal more about me than, than is necessary. But my favorite game I used to play is I'd get on my bicycle and I'd ride like top speed. And I would always be looking over my shoulder pretending someone was chasing me and I would have to get away from them. I have no idea why that was such <laughs> endless fun to me. But that was the – I'd be like – just like going like crazy and – and now I look back and I'm like, I was I didn't think I was playing spy, but I was, man, I was playing something. And, uh, and that, I think that, that I, any thriller writer is paranoid at heart. That's why we do what we do. Yes. 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 Um, and, and your books are a lot like that too, actually. They, there's always running and they're the pace of the book. Let's talk about the pace and the structure of it. The thing I love about this book, especially is the foreshadowing. The very first sentence in the book is these were the last 14 minutes of his life. And from there it was like, bang, it's like that roller coaster ride where you're going up, 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 and then it takes you down and back up again. And it just doesn't stop. It's relentless. How do you keep that up and how do you structure that? Yeah, you know, you just to to paraphrase the great Elmore Leonard, you just gotta leave out the parts that everyone thinks are boring. Um, <laughs> you know, you just—that's really it. I mean, wherever I, I I write for myself, I don't write for anyone else. I just know one thing, Ron. I'm I'm not that special. And if I'm bored, then everyone else is bored. And if I'm excited, then hopefully everyone else is excited. So I just write what I like, and I'm one of those readers who. I get bored easily. So if you if you're going on for the 19th page of describing the color of the grass, I'm like, make something happen. Let's go. Let's go. You know, and and so that's how I I have to do it for myself. And I, and listen, I think um, I think there was a point in the books, you know, years ago where I got too fast in a strange way. I got so focused on the plot that I lost sight of the characters. And I think what Zig and Nola have proven to me, and I was very consciously I went to do this is the best plot is a good character. And I think when you feel for Nola, the way you feel for her, and when you meet Zig and you feel for him, that's why the tension's there. Cause you care about them. I think they're just the best developed characters I've done. And so I hope that that's what gives it. It's kind of, if you didn't care about either of them, you wouldn't care how many, you know, I don't blow up buildings or just have, you know, violent murders. That's not what I do. What I do is I give you people you care about and then I put them in danger. That's exactly right. You're very successful about the reader caring about them and what's going to happen to them next and hope that they're safe because they're, they're people that you really grow to admire and like. So a lot of the book has a lot of technology in it. How do you keep up with all these different technologies? And it has to be very different from your first book. Yeah. Oh, please. My very first novel there's literally a scene in it where they have to go. One of the key plot points is they have to go get their film developed at the photo mat. <laughs> and my kids were like, what's a photo mat? And I was like, Oh my God, this is terrible. Right. I mean, my, yeah. and so obviously technology changes. I have very good government contacts who really help me stay ahead of, I always tell them, don't tell me what's happening now. Right. Tell me what we're going to be dealing with in five years. Cause I can't fight reality. It's too, it moves too fast. So the technology you see in this book, there's this great moment. I asked years ago how you can send secret messages to people. And they gave me this great, this guy who has a really good high job in one of the big acronym agencies in the country said to me, well, here's what you should do, Brad, is you're going to log into your Hotmail account. You're going to write a note, but don't send the email. If you send it, people can find it. The moment you hit send, it's traceable. I don't care if it's encrypted, they can crack encryption. But write the note and just hit save, save draft. Then I tell Ron, my buddy, who I wrote it to, I say, Ron, here's my login for Hotmail. Yep. 
you go into Hotmail, you open up my saved draft, you read what I wrote, you erase it, and then you write your own thing, and then you hit saved draft. And now you and I are speaking without ever sending a thing. And I thought, that's brilliant. Isn't that, that brilliant, is brilliant, Rob? That was brilliant. Until, until General Petraeus, the head of the CIA, used that exact trick to cheat on his wife. That's literally what he did. And I was like, son of a bitch, that's the trick they gave me. And then they realized that basically everything can be cracked. Um, the one thing that can't be cracked, I won't say what it is because it'll ruin the part of the book, but what you right. see in the book, in the lightning rod, what you, the trick that they use is, is I'm not saying that it's happening. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but it's a real, it came from the same person. And they're really friggin' smart about how to hide their eyes from the government. And what you see in the lightning rod is, I won't ruin chapter 34 whenever it appears, <laughs> but it's a, it's a hell of a trick. I didn't make it up. It's based on, on really smart people. It's a really great trick. And I, I just like, wow, wow. But I, I was still at the hotmail stage with the saved drafts. I thought that was brilliant until you, that I never really understood the Petraeus thing and how that happened. But now I do. new appreciation for his secrecy levels for you are right so let's talk about maybe a next book for the these two characters the ending of this one i'm not giving anything away but boy do we we want to hear from them again yes they i'm working on the new one now so zig and nola and you'll see there everyone's yes uh, that's all I could say without ruining yeah. it. But yes, yep. it's a fun one. It's a fun ending. The lightning rod is a fun ending, and um, and obviously you are not the only one who has said to me, you know, when do we get them back? So yes, the next one's about them as well. I am glad to hear that because they, ever since the escape artist, I was like, okay, this could go on for a long time. Good for you. So I want to move on a little bit to some of the other things that you do. One of the things that I am most um, just in awe of, both personally and as a a parent and a grandparent is your ordinary people change lives series and your I am and I am like the new ones we talked about where the newest ones are Muhammad Ali and Malala. Um, my granddaughter is fascinated with them and she's, I have to keep buying them when they come out for her. And she's, I, you know, I feel like she learns a lot. Her education is enriched by it. And um, it, she just, she sees what's possible for her. And, and I think that's, that's just amazing. So can you talk about how that all came together? Because it is bigger than just the books now. I love you for saying that. You know, it came about because I became a dad. When I wrote my first novel 25 years ago, I was 24 years old. And I wrote about 20-year-olds because that's what I was. And then when I got married, I wrote about a married couple. And then when I had a kid, I was like, I need some kids' books. I was tired of my kids looking and seeing the worst kind of heroes on social media and in the news every day. And I was like, I can give them better heroes to look up to. I can give them heroes of kindness and compassion and characters of perseverance to look up to. And I told my daughter uh, about Amelia Earhart. I was like, Amelia Earhart flew across the Atlantic Ocean. And isn't she amazing? Isn't that wonderful? My daughter said, big deal, dad. Everyone flies across the Atlantic Ocean. She was not impressed at all, right? She was like, big deal. And I told my daughter this true story that when Amelia Earhart was seven years old, she built a homemade roller coaster in her backyard. And she took a wooden crate and she put roller skating wheels on the bottom of it. And she shoved it to the roof of her tool shed and then came flying down the side and flew through the air. And that was the first moment Amelia Earhart flew. She was seven years old. And my daughter was like really into that story. Right. And I was like, that's the secret sauce. So we started with I'm Amelia Earhart. We did I am Abraham Lincoln. I am Rosa Parks. I am Albert Einstein. My son loves sports. I was like, here, forget a millionaire athletes who are shooting their mouth off every day on TV. 
meet this real sports hero. His name is Jackie Robinson. And we did uh, Lucille Ball. We've done Helen Keller. It's been an f- amazing ride. What was amazing to me is, Ron, is when the 2016 election happened and Hillary and Donald Trump were fighting every day on TV, two of our books started selling more than any others. And they were, I am Martin Luther King Jr. and I am George Washington. And it wasn't a Democrat or Republican thing. It had nothing to do with Democrats or Republicans. It was parents and grandparents on both sides were tired of turning on the TV and seeing politicians. What they wanted to show their kids were leaders. And we all know there's a huge difference between a politician and a leader. So we've obviously, we've done, I am Walt Disney. I am Jim Henson. I am Jane Goodall. We just did, as you said, I am Muhammad Ali and I am Malala. We have coming up, I am Dolly Parton, um, who is working with us on that book and so much fun to work with. And it's been just incredible. And I love the fact that people now use our books to build libraries of real heroes for their kids and their grandkids, their nieces and their nephews. And so the Ordinary People Change the World series has been just truthfully a gift more to me than I think it's been to anyone else. Mm, well, we could fight about that or agree to yeah. disagree on that. Because, I, I love you for it. I love <laughs> uh, you for it. I see it all the time too. Working in a library, people are always asking for them and often they're never on the shelves because they're all checked out. So, but I love too that again, encourage people to go to your website and learn more about this. There's kits that you can buy. There's collections you can buy. There's even a grandparent uh, subscription that you can sign up for. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and, and full credit, I, I should have said it first, Chris Eliopoulos is our amazing artist, and he is that yeah, sequel yeah. weapon. I mean, his art is like this cross between Charlie Brown meets Calvin and Hobbes. And that's why kids love the books, is because they're drawn like kids, and they look lovable. And so we just decided, we had so many grandparents and parents asking us, like, I want to get my grandkids and sons, can I get a subscription for them? So we literally started a subscription service. So you can have one where... Two books a month are sent to your grandkids every single month for a year. You can have one where two books are sent to them and two books are sent to you. And so you can read to them, which we thought was really fun because we had so many grandparents saying, I want to read to them over FaceTime and I'm separated by the pandemic. And how do I do this? Uh, or we just live far away. Forget about the pandemic. And and I love the fact that we've been able to do that. So the subscription service, you go to ordinarypeoplechangeworld.com or bradmelcher.com. Just hit the button that says subscriptions and you'll see uh, where it goes. But it is, uh, again, it's pretty humbling. It's really humbling. I mean, we just, I mean, I, I can show you, I mean, we're on the podcast, but you and I are on video right now. I can show you how many kids just on a daily basis will send me pictures of George Washington I got today. Here, I'll show you one just so you can see it. That truly just came today, I should say, um, of a little girl that, you know, just drew George Washington. <sighs> I mean, how great! I'm showing him a picture right now, but it's just it's this beautiful. It's a, it's a little girl, and she and it literally says, you know, he believed in Harry and courage. He looked out for those who believe in you. And I love that this girl, her name is Emily, on her on her little worksheet, suddenly loves and looks up to George Washington. I love that. It. That's beautiful to me. Oh my God! I'd be bawling getting those. Trust They're me. beautiful. They beautiful. truly are. Yeah, great. So let's move on to comics. (laughs) How did you get involved with um, creating comic books? Yeah, you know, I uh, people always say, how do you break into comic books? I said, I had to write four novels to do it. Um, In Mm -hmm. every novel that I write, I always hide comic book references since 1997. Not the ones like you see now, they're like hard ones. They're like, you got to know your comics to know. And one of the editors at DC Comics saw what I was doing and figured it out. And he, waited. he was last in line for my book, The Millionaires. He was the last person at the book signing. And he got up in the front of the line. He said, 
you want to write a comic book for DC? And I'm like, I've been waiting my whole life for someone to ask you me hear that. that question. So I've been able to write Batman and Superman. And, and listen, I love my job. I love when I get to write my thrillers or the kids' books. But when I get to write B-A-T-M-A-M and I get to put words in Batman's mouth, I am putting wearing my underwear on the outside of my pants that day, right? I mean, it is just a crazy way to spend your day. Yes. Uh, and I, obviously, I love to do that. So, you know, getting to play in that little with those those fun toys is is I know it sounds super cliche, but it really is one of those kind of childhood dreams that you never think is going to happen. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can think back to reading the comic books, the old Archies and the Batman, Superman, Bizarro World and Justice League and all of them. Down to Richie Rich. I read them all. Richie you name Rich, it, I read that's it. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. We're kind of running out of time, but I want to make sure that people know a, a little bit about um, your involvement in finding the missing 9-11 flag. That's a story that just really touched me. Oh, you're sweet. You know, we um, I went to the History Channel. We did a show called Decoded on the History Channel. Right. And then I went to them and said, I want to use a TV show to find lost historical artifacts. Now, like, what are you talking about? I'm like, we're going to use a TV show and it's going to make a TV show into a modern day wanted poster. I'll tell the story of the artifact and people will, will, you know, I went on TV. First story I ever told on television on the pilot episode is I told the story of the 9-11 flag, that famous flag that you see the firefighters raise at ground zero. We all know the photograph. What no one knew is that 24 hours later, that flag went missing. No one knew where it was. And I said, looked into the camera and said, someone out there has it. I know you have it. If you have it, I'll give you $10,000 if you bring it back. And what I couldn't say at the time is that just a few days after that pilot episode aired, a man walked into a fire station in Everett, Washington, in Washington State. He said, I saw the show Lost History. I have the 9-11 flag. I want to bring it back. And it's, we took about a year for us to authenticate it. We worked with the former head of the FBI's art crimes unit. He said to me, this flag is now more authenticated than most Rembrandts and museums. And I got to unveil on the 15th anniversary of 9-11, I got to unveil it in the 9-11 museum where it is still on display. And talk about one of the most humbling moments of my life. I mean, yeah. people send me pictures. I got one of a soldier who was at Pearl Harbor saluting the flag. And I, I, again, I just play a small part in bringing it back. It was just an amazing experience. It had to be. It had to be. What a! It, it just talks about the power of television in a way and the power of visual communication too, which you've had a lot more of than we talked about. It's all... Luckily, on your website, which I keep <laughs> sending people to, but there's a lot on there. But the one thing I just kind of want to end on, if it's okay, is I watched your TED Talk. And it made me think, because I've always wondered what drives people. But as, but as that first talk of yours was playing and I was listening, I was like, this is a lot of what drives him. Is that is that accurate? And, and what if that's not, or and you can expound on it too, what does no, drive you? It's, it's, it, no, that is what drives I mean, listen, my it is absolutely what drives me. And I don't, you should look at just put in Brad Meltzer obituary and TED yes. Talk and you'll see it. And, you know, I, I was, I worked to save the house where Superman was created in Cleveland, Ohio. And when a reporter for the Wall Street Journal was asking me about it, he said to me, you know, Brad, this is this thing you did with the Superman house that's going to be in your obituary. And my first thought was, thanks for so clearly contemplating my death. But I was struck by that idea. What's going to be in my obituary? What are they going to remember about me when I'm gone? 
And it sent me on a year-long quest to figure it out. And you'll see in the TED Talk what my answer is and what I found. But it, it was just one of those things that really made me look at my life and say, you know, why are we here and what are we doing? And the answer was incredibly inspiring to me because it, it, it kind of peeled away my own life in ways I didn't expect. Yeah, it's it's really touching, but it's very inspiring, as I said. And, but it, it's, it's something we, everybody needs to see. So you definitely find it. And watch it, everybody. So, Brad, I can't thank you enough for being here today. I just, this has exceeded my expectations. But where can people find out more about you and connect with you online? Other yeah, than so your you, website? And of course, you can go to bradmeltzer.com, but I'm on every social media with Facebook at Brad Meltzer, Instagram at Brad Meltzer, Twitter at Brad Meltzer, LinkedIn at Brad Meltzer. So just put my name in into any of those things with an at sign in front of it. You'll find me even on YouTube at Brad Meltzer. So, I'm very active on there. We love posting fun are. stuff and inside things. And, and I encourage you, you know, sign, when you sign up for our newsletter, you will get the news of what we're doing before anybody. And it is really fun to kind of, I love communicating with our readers. You know, my first fan mail I ever got was a woman named Shelly who wrote to me. I'm still in touch with her. She invited me to her wedding oh, 25 wow. years later. I still, she's uh, one of the best. And so I, I take our readers very seriously. So anyone who's listening, thank you for making it all this way. That is awesome. And thank you all for listening to this inspiring episode of the Friends in Fiction Writers Block podcast. As always, we hope you've enjoyed hearing from Brad and that you will join us next week when we host Harlan Coben. Please share this with a friend. Thank you to our presenting sponsors, Charleston Coffee Roasters and Page One Books for their generous support. Show our sponsors some love by following them on Facebook and Instagram and subscribing to their email newsletters. Remember, use code COFFEEWITHFRIENDS for 20% off bagged coffees at Charleston Coffee Roasters and code FRIENDS, plural, FRIENDS15 for 15% off book subscriptions at page one. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends in Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.